We have a guest preacher, uh, Jonathan Yap, is going to be bringing the word this morning. Jonathan uh, is a theological student sent by First Evangelical Reformed Church in Singapore. He's married to Samantha, and they have two daughters. He's finishing his final year at Puritan Reformed Theological Seminary here in Grand Rapids, um, after which he hopes to return home. Uh, so we're honored to have you here. Stage is yours. Good morning. Greetings from Singapore. All right. We can turn our Bibles to Romans 13, verse 11 to 14. Let me read verse 10 onwards to the end. Verse 10, Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Dear Redeemer Bible Church, our lives are often shaped by unexpected events out of our control. In our lives, there are often events that come out of nowhere and affect us, of course. And if life is not hard enough, there are global events that are unexpected or maybe expected. COVID, wars, famines. Now, wouldn't life be easier if we knew in advance the things that would happen to our lives so that we can prepare for it? But thankfully, as Christians, as believers, the most important future event is something that is expected. We know it is coming. We know what it is. And it, an event, a future event that should shape our lives right now. And that is the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. The return of Christ. Now, how does hearing about that event right now affect you? What reactions do you have to it? Is it fear? Is it joy? You know, we learn about the return of Christ in many places, in the parable of the ten virgins, the parable of the talents, and in our passage today. Suffice to say, the return of Christ should be on our minds, always. Now, before Jesus first came, there were many questions about the coming of the Messiah. Many questions. But the second coming of Jesus, it is clear, it is clear. For Jesus himself came to tell us that he was coming back. John 14 verse 3, Jesus says, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again 
and will take you to myself. That where I am, you may be also. And so what Paul does in our passage in Romans 13 is that he uses this period of waiting for the return of Jesus. He uses this period to exhort us on how we are to live. He uses the concept of time to exhort us to godliness. And so that's our sermon title this morning. Knowing the time we put on Jesus. And so we go to point one, knowing the time. Now we live in a time awaiting the return of Jesus. End of verse 11. Salvation is nearer to us than when we first believed. Now we must note that the salvation here is not referring to justification for it's already here. We are justified in Christ when we believed. Now what Paul has in mind in salvation here is the fullness of salvation, the resurrection, the glorification of all believers, which comes when Christ returns. And Christ's return is nearer as time goes on and on as days go by. And Paul's point is that this time we live while waiting for Christ has this urgent quality. Because in biblical redemptive history, there is no more milestone. There's no more big milestone that we're waiting for except the return of Jesus. And so Paul, 2,000 years ago, and us right now, we are living in that end part of salvation history, awaiting the return of Jesus. And so that's why often in the New Testament, there's always this mention of the last days. We are living in the last days. Mm. Hebrews 1 verse 1, God hath in this last days spoken to us by His Son. Now our concern here is not calculating when Jesus will come back exactly. The word for time here is not chronos. It's not chronos. It's not chronos for chronological, referring to days or hours. The word here for time is kairos, which refers to the season, the quality of time. And we live in this season which has this quality of urgency. Why? Because Jesus is coming. And the return of Jesus must inform us on how we are to live. That's Paul's point here. Now to help us understand better this time that Paul speaks, let me put it this way. Let me put it this way. Believers, all of us, we are living at 4 a.m. in the morning. We are living at 4 a.m. in the morning. Now what am I talking about? I want us to look at the night and day imagery that Paul uses here. Look at verse 12. The night is far gone and the day is at hand. Now Paul's point is that Jesus is coming back in the morning. The day is at hand, it's coming. And so the time we live in is you know, before sunrise. So for the sake of illustration, this would be around 4 a.m., right? We are living at 4 a.m. where darkness is going away and the light of day, the light of Jesus is coming when he returns, right? We are living at 4 a.m. and we know that Jesus is coming back in the morning. That is where we are in history. And so Paul establishes this point and wants us to make sure that we wake up from the night. Day is coming. But that begs the question, what is the night referring to here? Is the night something bad? And that's why we need to wake up, as Paul calls us to. 
Well, Paul speaks about the works of darkness in verse 12. So indeed, the night and the darkness is something negative. The night would refer to the age we live in, in this sinful world that will pass away. That is the night. The night is not just simply a time before Jesus returns, but it is an evil night, the evil present age. And of course, we experience this night because we are living in this present evil age, in this world. We experience all this evil around us. But the hope, the Christian hope is that this world, this night will pass away soon. And that's why we look forward to the day. But the danger is that we can love the night, to love this evil world, this evil present age, to love sin. Paul knows that, and that's why Paul calls us to wake up. And so, to think further ahead, what does it mean to continue sleeping through the night? What does it mean to not wake up from this night, according to these verses? It would be to live with no, no carefulness, no watchfulness, no navigation around things that tempt us to sin. Living as if this world is all we have. Indifferent to shining the light of Christ in this dark world. Indifferent to Christ's coming. It's this spiritual sleepiness. And that's why Paul calls us to wake up. We are living this special time between night and day. And so again, 4 a.m. 4 a.m. is the overlap between night and day. I mean, let me ask you, is 4 a.m. night time? You may say, Oh, not really. Then let me ask you again. It's 4 a.m. morning. Is it? Uh, not really. So 4 a.m. is the overlap between night and day. So likewise, we live in this overlap between the evil world and also the glorious realities of heaven. There is this tension, this 4 a.m. time that we live in. Yes, so we live in this evil world right now. We have already tasted the future glorious realities of heaven. We've already tasted a bit of the future morning glory. To understand this better, let me again pose a question. Are we new creations in Christ? Are we new creations in Christ? Yes, the Bible says so. But are we sinless already? Completely sinless? Have we experienced a resurrection where we have our new bodies? No. So that's what we call the already but not yet. We already experience some of this glorious future, but not yet fully. That only comes, the fullness of it only comes at the return of Jesus Christ. And so Paul's point here is that we are at 4 a.m., day and night overlapping. Crucial question for all of us, are we to live as in the night or as in the day? Do we live like the world in darkness or do we live in light of Jesus coming in the morning? Well, of course, we live as in the day, verse 13, daytime. And that means we wake up. Now, to give an illustration to summarize what has been said so far, imagine a big house at night and there was a group of people partying in the basement, a party of sinful desires. Then there was a second group sleeping soundly upstairs. 
Now, both these groups have one thing in common. They don't mind if the night goes on and on. They can either party or sleep through the night. But there was a third group who knows that when morning comes, the king will come to visit. And so, 4 a.m., they're getting ready. They're wide awake, they're getting ready. They dress themselves in a way that the king will be pleased. They know to do all this because they know the day is coming and the king is coming. And yes, even though it's very early in the morning, it does not matter to them because they love the king and they're focused on the day that they will see the king. And all their actions right now at 4 a.m. is in light of the coming morning, the coming day. So, three groups I presented to you. Which group would you say you belong to? Now, the command to wake up here is not a one-time action. It's a, it describes a state to be constantly awake. A state of being aware that the king is coming and to know that this world is dangerous, this world is dark, and this world will fall away one day. And yes, there are times that we can be described as half asleep. We know what Jesus calls us to do, but we're so lethargic and tired. But Paul says, wake up. It's foolishness to think that, it's foolishness to live as if this world is all that we have. And the night goes on and on. Now children, children, remember Jonah, the story of Jonah. He ignored God's call and mission for him and he ran away from what God called him to. And then there was the storm in the sea. And everybody, everybody, including the unbelievers, they were awake. Who was the one asleep? It was Jonah. And the unbelievers had to wake up Jonah to do something. So let us be awake to what God calls us to do. You know, when someone calls you to wake up, whether you're adult or child, when someone calls you to wake up in the house, it's for your own good. It's for your own good. And so likewise, this passage, it's a warning passage. It's a warning passage, but it is a gracious, gracious passage. Calling those who are sleeping right now to wake up. And remember the parable of the ten virgins? Same command from Jesus. Same command of Jesus. Live in light of the coming return of Jesus. There's still time to wake up and to always remember that the one we wake up for is worthy of it. King Jesus is worthy to, for us to wake up early and to prepare for. And with that, we come to what Paul calls us to do. The next point. Verse 12 to 13. Cast off the works of darkness. Let's focus on that first. So verse 12, Paul uses a new imagery which is similar to what we have said so far about waking up. Verse 11 was waking out of sleep. Verse 12, he uses the clothing imagery which follows waking up. Right? When we wake up, either we continue wearing our night clothes, what we wore to sleep, or we change to our day clothes. And so Paul says the day is coming, and so be dressed for the day. No longer night clothes living for the night, but verse 12, cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. And so in verse 13, we see a list of sins. Now, this is not, it's not meant to be an exhaustive list. It's intended to be general. Orgies, 
drunkenness, sexual immorality, sensuality. Now all this refers to a lack of self-control to your desires. Lust. And then we have quarreling and jealousy. Now underneath all these sins is the idol of yourself. Doing what I like without restraint. The goal in life is to seek my pleasure above love of my neighbour and above a love of God. That is the that's the what is beneath all these sins in verse 13 a love for myself putting myself above all and these are the sins of the night of darkness that believers of daylight should not partake in verse 13 believers must walk properly before God and before men doing nothing that causes shame and so these works of darkness can also speak of what we desire to do in secret in the dark and no doubt in this age of technology, private sins abound so much more. And of course, believers can be tempted. And Paul says to all this, let us cast it off. Let it not be a part of us, believers who walk in the daylight. So essentially, Paul is telling us, live as if truly live knowing that God sees everything. No secret, no secret. Now, church, let me ask you one thing. Do you think that the fact that God sees everything is comforting? Is it a good thing for us? Of course. It's a wonderful thing to know that God sees my suffering. It's a wonderful thing to know when God sees the persecution of the church, when He sees my needs. But sometimes there is a desire to not want God to see everything so that we can partake in secret sins of the night. Now let it not be. Let us walk honestly before God and before man. Like the psalmist, we shall cry out, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. Psalm 139 verse 23. From verse 13, Paul is clear. Believers can engage in all these sinful activities. Living as though the night goes on forever. Living as though the world is all that we have. And forgetting that the day that Jesus is coming. So the danger is a live-for-the-moment attitude, a pursuit of your own desire above all. And sin is like the blanket that we love. It makes us sleepy. In the wintertime, none of us love anything more than a heavy, warm blanket sleeping through the night. And sin is like that. It makes us drowsy, sleepier, more comfortable. And like, you know, in the wintertime, having a heavy blanket over us, it takes a lot to throw out the blanket and start the day. But for sin, we must do that. Throw off the heaviness of sin that so easily weighs us down, that makes us so comfortable. Paul says, cast it off. Throw it out. Wake up. In verse 13 again, Paul not only focuses on blatant, obvious sexual sins, but there are more subtle sins such as quarreling and jealousy. Now Paul has in mind church quarrels where food can be something that the church fights over. We see that in Romans 14. Quarrels, 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 so easily besetting us. Then let's talk about jealousy. Now jealousy for believers is illogical. Jealousy does not make sense for believers. First. What need is there for a Christian to be jealous over 
temporal things that an unbeliever has. What need is there? Does the believer not know that it's far richer in Christ? Second, how can a believer be jealous of another Christian, another believer, when both have the same Father who gives generously according to His grace and wisdom? Jealousy doesn't make sense. And do not think that quarrels and jealousy are not as bad as the other sins listed here. All these sins in verse 13 are works of darkness. Sins and works that imitate the world more than imitating Jesus. Again, all the sins here are due to an idol of myself. When we put ourselves first and foremost, all these sins flow like a river. We can say that these sins are sins of ignorance. Ignoring, ignoring the clear commands of God. Ignoring the time that we spoke about. Ignoring Jesus. Titus 2, verse 12 to 13 adds on to what we have been saying so far. Paul there says, We are to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Deny sin, live righteously, look for the coming of Jesus. That is the Christian life. Jesus is the focus. His second coming and who He is. We focus on the fact Jesus is coming, but of course we also focus on the beauty of the person of Jesus Christ. Only with a focus on Jesus can we do all these things to cast off the works of darkness and to live in the light. And with that, we come to our last point. Put on Jesus. The climax of our sermon and this chapter. Okay, so we talk about casting off the works of darkness. Put, put away. But there is a putting on here in verse 12. The armor of light. Now Paul again shifts his imagery. He shifts to a soldier here. Armor, soldier. Now, what does it tell us? Why is it an armor here? Why is it an armor of light? Why is it not a robe of light? Why is it an armor? Well, because as we live in this world, it's a spiritual battle. Armor needed. Sin is active to pursue us, so we must be active in putting on the armor of light. And you may remember Paul speaks a lot about the armor of God in Ephesians 6, 13. Take up the whole arm of God that you may be able to stand, withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Obviously, that passage in Ephesians 6 is important for what we are talking about today. But the reference may be more towards uh, 1 Thessalonians 5.8 where Paul says, Since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith, love, and the helmet the hope of salvation. Faith, hope, love in Christ. 1 Thessalonians 5.8 And so that's what Paul does in verse 14. The final image, put on Jesus Christ. It is Jesus Christ himself that we put on. Now putting on is something that's easy to understand. Right? Putting on is easy to understand. But to put on Jesus... What a rich command, right? Putting on Jesus, putting on Jesus. Where do we begin to understand this command? 
Now, first of all, believers, we are covered in the righteousness of Christ. Isaiah, 6, Isaiah 61 verse 10, My soul shall exult in my God, for He has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. The righteousness of Christ that we receive by faith in Him. Now, but our passage is not talking so much about justification. It's more to do with sanctification. By faith, we receive Christ and we are united with Christ by the Spirit. And so to put on Christ here is to live out our union with Christ that we have by faith. Paul puts it simply in Philippians 1.21, to live is Christ. Galatians 2.20, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. See that intimate union with Christ. That's our identity. And, Paul, and Christ has given us this new life that we are to live out. Romans 6.4 Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, Christ was raised, so we too might walk in a newness of life, identity in Christ. And so in Christ, when we face the tempting beauty of sin, we have the beauty of Christ who has come to make all things new. The Savior has come to redeem sinners like us and given us eternal life and has brought us to fellowship with God. He has made us citizens of His glorious kingdom. He has brought us into God's family to be called children of God. And He has made us new creations in Him. So beholding Him, all sins lose their beauty. In Christ, we pursue the beauty of the Christian life. To know and to live out Jesus, our Savior. And so believers, you who profess your love for Jesus, the Christian life is this, love what Jesus loves and hate what he hates. Let the thought of Jesus guide your affections, your desires, your actions. Now we all put on many identities here. What do I mean by that? We have parents here, we have children here, we have siblings here. We have students here, we have employees here, we have employers here. We put on many identities when we wake up and go and do what we do in a day. But let us put on Christ first and foremost. Underneath all these identities that we live out, we put on Christ first and foremost. Let Christ be the, the garment beneath all the other garments, the other identities that we put on. And to put Him, to put him on is to imitate Him. There's no flaw in him. Now, there, there are many great men in the Bible that we can learn from, but they all have their little flaws here and there. But Jesus, glorious perfection, worthy of imitation, worthy of imitation, right? And it's a wonderful privilege that we can put on Jesus. As his servants, we are called to put on our master. What a great privilege. And as we put on Jesus, we can think about the dignity that we have. To put on Jesus, right? We put on Jesus, we have this dignity given to us in Christ. So how then can we engage in the filth of sin? What I mean is that we put on Jesus, but there is a desire to put off Jesus. Put off Jesus when we want to indulge in sin. No, dear believer, Paul calls us to wake up no more sleeping. No more clothings of darkness. Put on Jesus and let Jesus stay there. This wake up, put on language that Paul is speaking about 
It's to be constant. Let's not be complacent. Let's not be complacent. And so don't ever think that this new life in Christ is, that's only for our future. When we go to heaven, we can think about all these things. But it is to be lived out right now as we live out in this evil world, awaiting the return of Jesus. And Paul's reasoning throughout his letters is simple. You are united with Christ. So live out this privilege. Because it lives, so do you live. And so our identity is to be rooted in Christ. And we are tempted to cover our own identity. But God does not call us to be best versions of ourselves. He calls us to be like Christ. Romans 8.29 For those who He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. And so let Jesus guide our thoughts and actions. Let our, all our thoughts be captive to Christ. And so this identity of Christ gives us the power to fight sin. Knowing we belong to Christ helps us to fight sexual sins. 1 Corinthians 6.20, Paul says, You were bought with a price. You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. And so like Paul, you must say, Christ redeemed me body and soul. He purchased me by His precious blood. So should I freely give myself to sin? The sin that caused the death of my Jesus. You can only serve one master in this life. Why not serve the master who redeemed you? In Christ, we have the power to make no provision for the flesh. End of verse 14. In Christ, we have the power to make no thought for the desires of the flesh. Now, sin tries to bait you like a fisherman. A bait that is enticing, but is actually dangerous. Sin wants to negotiate with you. Right? Sin says to you, you're, you're forgiven of all your sins. You're forgiven. So sin is no longer dangerous, right? So why are you so careful for sin? Now, the Bible says that David also sinned and he was forgiven. So sin is not so bad, right? No, Jesus, Jesus is not going to return today. So sin does not really matter. So that's what sin tries to deceive us with. Sin also tries to say sometimes, God has not given you the life that you desire. God has not healed you of your sufferings. So you deserve it to have some enjoyment of sin. That's the that's language that sin presents us with. And we all know that this sin is still within us, right? The temptation of sin. All these lies that sin, the devil, gives us. But Paul says, make no provision for the flesh. Give no space to that sort of language that sin tempts us with. Everything must be in the interest of Jesus. Because Jesus owns the whole believer body and soul, that's why there's no negotiation with sin. Put on Jesus, whom we are united with right now by the Spirit, and whom we shall be with forever in eternity in heaven. I wish to conclude with a few applications. Just a few conclusions. Again, first, to again speak about sin. Sin is illogical. Sin does not make sense for the believer. We are partakers of the new creation right now. And so shall we be forever. So why do we engage 
and the filth of this world that shall perish. Now remember, Jacob gave Joseph that wonderful coat, right? That wonderful coat of many colors. And the brothers tore the coat and threw him in the pit. Now believers, when we sin, it's like we put off Jesus and we jump into the pit of sin by ourselves, by our own will. That does not make sense. That does not make sense. Jacob loved Joseph and gave him a coat. God loved you and gave you Jesus to put on. So put on Jesus and put off sin. And second, Paul speaks to the church here. Let us, plural, let us cast off, let us put on. There's this corporate element in this passage. So I exhort all of you, this church, the church, the bride of Christ awaiting the return of Christ, we all do this together. Right? We walk with one another. We wake one another up. Okay. Corporate worship right now, this day, is where God uses the preaching and our singing, our singing, don't forget that, to wake one another up. Wake one another up. And all the songs we sing should wake us up to behold Jesus, to see the beauty of our Savior that we live for. And remember this. Every Lord's Day, every Sunday is a Lord's Day closer to the return of Jesus. I don't know how many Lord's Day we have left. And so let us use this Sunday that passes by week in and week out to exhort ourselves and one another to behold the return of Jesus, that day of Jesus' return. Third, now we all, to various degrees, we all have this spiritual sleepiness to the return of Jesus. Sleepiness. Now, do consider what is causing our sleepiness. What is causing our indifference to Jesus' return? It may be busyness with work. We may be in a season where we are more involved in the world. Our jobs need more from us nowadays. And maybe we are more sucked into entertainment. So let's be aware of all these things. And let us use our time to focus on the, ki- on the things of the kingdom. Right? Let us strive to be more and more awake. And fourth, spiritual warfare. This fighting, put off sin, put on Jesus, is tiring. The, 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 the arm of light feels heavy sometimes, but we must fight. We must fight. We wear our armor now, we fight, but there will be a day where we lay down our armor when Jesus returns. No more fighting. No more fighting. But nevertheless, we now fight. We fight with joy, knowing that Jesus is with us. Knowing that we belong to Jesus and not to this world that perishes. And it's through this fighting, brethren, through this fighting sin that we know Jesus more and more. Through this fighting of our sin, we love Jesus more and more. We see His beauty that says, all this sin that I fill in, Jesus died for this sin. Through fighting this sin, we come to appreciate, come to love Jesus more and more. Come to see that His strength is made perfect in our weakness. Fight sin because that's our duty, but also fight sin because it brings you closer to your Savior that has conquered your sin on the cross. And for those who have not believed in Jesus today, let me give you a word. Today we spoke about Jesus' second coming, where He shall return to judge. And the only way to stand firm in that day of judgment is to look at His first coming, where He came, 
and died and was raised again. Look and believe in the gospel. Behold this Jesus. Only by believing in this Jesus can we be forgiven of our sins. The only way to stand before this Jesus on Judgment Day is to look at his life and to say that I want this life for myself. I want his righteousness for myself because I have no righteousness of my own whereby I can stand before God. Come to Jesus. Come to this Jesus. Now, brethren, in conclusion, when it comes to the return of Jesus, we all know there are many theories, many views on the return of Jesus. But what is clear in the Bible, what is clear in the Bible with regards to the return of Jesus is that His return must affect how we live right now. So many passages. So we say that eschatology, the doctrine of the last times, must inform ethics. Eschatology must inform ethics. Jesus' return must inform how we live. Now the world out there wants to ignore the first and second coming of Jesus. Now brethren, as believers, we can ignore the second coming. Yes, we can say, yes, I know about the first coming, but there's a danger that we ignore the second coming. Both these first and second comings, they are together. They are one. Both must inform how we are to live. Let us not ignore the coming of Jesus in the morning. May God help us all. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for this precious word that you have given us. And we pray that your spirit accompanies this word. Your spirit uses this word to wake us all up, to live indeed in the glorious reality that Christ is coming. And right now, we also pray that we might wake up to the reality that we are united to Christ and we are waiting with joy, with joy. By your spirit, not by our own strength, we pray that you help us to cast off this sense of the night and to put on Jesus. Putting on Jesus, what a rich command that we know that we cannot do one bit without your help of the Spirit. So may your Spirit help us. And may you also use this word to save those who have not come to your Son. Be merciful and gracious to us needy sinners. Help us to put on Jesus. Help us to put on Jesus. And it's in His wonderful name that we pray. Amen. Will you stand for our closing benediction? Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace be with you. Peace be with you.